Today we're going to talk all things biomechanics with Dr. Eric Goodman of Foundation Training. And Eric shares an incredible amount of information in this episode about how your skeleton, joints, and tissues all work together, or perhaps fail to work together, to propel, to propel you through life and sport, including opening the body's communication pathways and nervous system by decompressing, the overlooked prerequisites for accessing your posterior chain musculature, which is so important, and the risks of complacent adaptation and so many more topics. A couple quick announcements as we dive in. First, the enrollment of the Foundations of Heart Rate Variability course is now closed for the year. It'll be opening again in 2018 along two of our brand new advanced HRV training courses, one for health, one for performance. More information on those is at hrvcourse.com. Last, a big thank you to everyone who backed our Kickstarter campaign for the new CoreSense HRV sensor. If you're interested in measuring accurate HRV from your fingertip, we're now accepting pre-orders over at elitehrv.com for the new CoreSense. Now let's dive in. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is Jason, your host, and today we have Dr. Eric Goodman joining us and Eric, uh, where, where are you joining us from? I'm in uh, Carpinteria, just outside of Santa Barbara, California right now. Nice. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, I know that you've got a lot going on. You have a thriving business of your own, so I appreciate you taking the time. It's it's a pleasure to be on here. And, and like I said just a moment ago, I really do appreciate any help and support that we can get in sharing our, our message of health. Yeah, it's it's awesome, and I'm I'm excited to dig into some of these topics. So, to give folks a little background, uh, Dr. Eric's helped thousands of people improve their structural condition, their movement patterns, and just general health and performance. And this is everybody from average people looking to get healthy to athletes to movie stars. In fact, your your true to form book has a nice forward by the famous actor Chris Hemsworth, who who people might be familiar with playing Thor. And, uh, you know, he's known for having a pretty impressive physique. So that's a pretty neat testimonial to have in there. Um, but yeah, so uh, Dr. Eric, you're a chiropractor by education, but early in your career, you started kind of doing a lot of your own independent research and partially because you were facing back surgery and some other uh, things that you weren't really satisfied with. Could you maybe give a little background on how you came across all this stuff? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to do that. So... Uh, thanks for a nice introduction, by the way. I appreciate that. Uh, it always seems to add a, an odd form of credibility to mention celebrities and athlete endorsement. <laughs> right. They have a body just like everybody else. You know, the, there's nothing special about them. They're just they have a body, and their body does what it does, and sometimes it breaks down. And you use very similar methods to get them better that you would use on a non-famous person, which is quite interesting. Uh, so my background is is yeah, I'm educated as a chiropractor. I got out of chiropractic school in April of 2008 and got my doctorate. And that was pretty much the peak of my involvement in the chiropractic profession, which I love. I love the profession very much. I, I respect it deeply, but my path in life was meant to go more into the active biomechanics uh, world. I didn't know it at the time, but 
you know, 10 years later or nine years later, it was very clear to me that I'm a biomechanics guy more than anything else. And that process started because my back was so bad that I almost couldn't get through chiropractic school. I was, you know, at a DO's office and I was at an MD's office in my third year of chiropractic school. And they both agreed that I should get a fusion surgery on my lower back. And that was, that was insane to me. Um, I was 27 years old, you know, I was a kid and I was a very physical kid and I was a smart kid. And those, those two couple things wouldn't allow me to get surgery. I was very stubborn and I was very, maybe overconfident. You know, I don't know that it was the, I don't, maybe it was egotistical, maybe it was overconfidence or maybe it was curiosity. It was one of those things that made me say, all right, I'm going to try to figure this thing out and get better. There's no way I'm getting fusion surgery. Those things are bad for you, especially at a young age. So yeah, it became an everyday endeavor. I took it very seriously. I'm a, when I need to be disciplined, I can, I can get there. And I became extremely disciplined in understanding my, uh, my SI joint and my lower back where the vast majority of my degenerative changes in my spine took place. Uh, it's beat up, man. Uh, some of the best radiologists have seen my, my MRIs now and they look at them and they just shake their head. They're like, this is the sign <laughs> of, a, of a much older man who did much uh, yeah. in life the right way and much more in life the wrong way. And I think that I can attribute that to my, you know, for me from age, you know, seven or eight to, to 28, I was doing things pretty poorly. Even though I was exercising, even though I was a college athlete, I was a water polo player, I played ice hockey for a decade prior to that. I worked out five, six days a week in the gym. In fact, some of my closest friends in life now are the people I used to train with back then. And it broke me down to the point of absurdity. And that absurdity, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that absurdity revealed itself at those doctor's offices when I was told that I needed fusion surgery for something they didn't understand any better than I did. They just saw the breakdown and I felt the breakdown and foundation training as it exists now at the end of 2017 is a very thorough response at this stage to that degenerative change in the spine and how we as human beings can support it radically and, and impactfully and make ourselves better in the process. Uh, that's that's a great intro and and background and you know it stuff that we'll kind of dig into is like you, despite being an athlete for all intents and purposes and exercising regularly and doing a lot of things that most people would consider right you're kind of building off of this you know as soon as you go to school for the first time they stick you in a desk and um, have you sit in this weird kind of unnatural position and. Uh, and then when you do go exercise, a lot of cases, depending on the sport or the type of exercise, it's just kind of reinforcing that, uh, those bad positions that we find ourselves in throughout life. And people are familiar with the fact that sitting is, uh, sitting's the new smoking, smoking, they say, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. So we can dig into a lot of these different things. So yeah. I'm excited for that. Yeah. I think that I, I somehow, I'm currently in a more relevant position than I was when we first started doing this. And I think that's just because the more I've understood about my own back injuries, the more I've seen in other people and the more common it becomes that most people are either quietly or loudly suffering uh, with some physical stuff that's not light. You know, it's not a scratchy thing. It's not a, it's not a cut on the bottom of your foot. It's the center of your body 
gone haywire and weak and and painful. And it's uh it's something to contend with seriously. And sitting, as it turns out, is definitely on the list of ingredients that lead to back problems. Right. And I think this is the type of stuff that, you know, people don't really, like you said, quietly or loudly. I kind of like how you said that because um, everyone knows somebody who's like always complaining about back pain or something like that. And, uh, you know, if that's you, then I'm not making fun of you or anything. I'm just, uh, um, just bringing to light that somebody, everyone knows someone, but then behind the scenes, there's a lot of people who don't actually complain about it. And everyone can probably think of some kind of position or movement or some kind of discomfort that they deal with that they might just be attributing to the normal aging, so to speak, or, you know, it's just the way things are, um, and, you know, who is, who are we talking about here? Who can use foundation training, which we'll talk more about what it is, but um, I know you work with a ri- wide range of folks. Does it cover the full spectrum? I think it does. Not as a cure-all. You know, there's, I would never, I don't ever say that we're a cure-all. I don't think those exist. And I know that we are not among them if they do exist, but we're close. We're, we're a cure a lot. We're a help a lot, you know? Most people that do the work are going to notice improvement somewhere. Now, improvement and cure are very different things. We're not trying to treat your pain. We're trying to improve the environment in which that pain happens, the environment being your body. Your body is made up of so many systems. And what people got to get in their head about pain is that the spectrum of pain sensitivity is as broad or more broad than the human spectrum of weight distribution and fat versus skinny, muscular versus non, mesomorph, ectomorph, endomorph, things like that could be used similarly in defining pain sensitivity spectrums. And it is as influenced by hormones, as influenced by nutrition, as influenced by sleep patterns and training patterns and thought processes as fat, skinny, strong, weak. So when we think of pain, it's not an age thing. It's not an athletic ability thing. It's not a, a passive or active in life. It's not whether you're sitting too long or, or running. It's if you have a human body and you have a cell phone and you have a car and you have a TV and you read a lot of books, you're probably changing your body's natural postures without even realizing it, whether you're sitting or standing or anything. So if you've adopted the current norm of technology, you are actively adapting towards those convergent screens. You're actively putting pressure on a few very important areas along the spinal nerves. And they are not the be-all, end-all of health, but they're ingredients in feeling bad or feeling good. And those positions of technology, more than sitting, more than anything else, those convergent shoulders, those internal rotated shoulders and anterior head carriages and sunken rib cages that are leveraging themselves closer and closer to the front of the pelvis while we, you know, while we kind of rest up against a backrest or just stand as if we were resting up against a backrest. Anybody that is in that situation from age, you know, 10 to age, I don't know, some multiple of 10, you're going to... Find improvement by focusing on how your body moves, how your body breathes, how it supports itself in space. There's a proprioceptive component 
a balancing and coordination component, and a strengthening component. Each of those is present when you use healthy isometric postures that challenge your body against its learned adaptations instead of into its learned adaptations. Love it. Yeah, there's so much that we can dig into there. I, the first thing that comes to mind is I like that you talk about adaptation. And this is something that um, I've also talked about in other areas, basically, is um, everything that you do in life basically tells your body that it should try to be able to do that better, right? So it's just a basic adaptation that the body is designed to the Anytime you do something, your body is learning, okay, now I need to get better at doing this. So the more you sit, the better you get at sitting. Exactly. The more, you know, the more you look only 10 inches from your eyeballs or, you know, 10 inches away, if you don't ever look in the long distance, your eyes don't really need to look into long distance. So you might lose some of that long distance viewing capability. So you might have some macular degeneration or some other medical term that I don't know about. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so this is, this is, this is powerful. So for, um, while you're, while you're on that, before we get too far away from that, that vision component that you're talking about, cause it's a really smart component. The biomechanics of vision are equally important to the biomechanics of your spine and your ankles and your hips, their muscles, their focusing muscles, their oblique muscles, their lateral and vertical muscles. Like your eyes are little things under the control of puppet strings and those puppet strings need to remain in motion often they need to remain practiced just like elsewhere in the body where those muscles the strings that move us the connectors the things that make us go they got to stay in practice and what we find each of these these adaptations be it you know be it conscious or unconscious or i like to use the word complacent adaptations it's happening anyways we just don't recognize it we don't do anything about it those complacent adaptations tend to occur when one side of the strings wherever it is on your body is used more than the other side or one part above is used more than the part below and there's less of a balance between the muscle chains and the muscle connections because it's that balance it's that eccentric to concentric it's the agonist antagonist and the oblique angle to opposite oblique angle that sort of resist one another and keep each other strong perpetually without that resistance it's very hard for a muscle to remain healthy and strong that's powerful and the and you know you've people probably have heard if you spend a lot of time on the computer it's a good idea to look away and look out the window or something like that but is that that's pretty much what we're talking about here? That's the mechanism behind why that might be good advice. Well, listen, it's not the computer's fault. Our computer has nothing to do with this. It has everything to do with it because it's a fixed object in space that we're staring at for a, a fixed amount of time. Remove the computer and stare at the spot on your desk that it took with no other visual stimulation coming in. No words, no voices, no anything. Meditate on that space peacefully pleasantly for the same amount of time that you would look at your computer screen and it's going to do the same crappy stuff to your body. You know, it's going to do the same thing. It's the fixated space in time. It's the convergent postures. It's the, it's the weight of your head dictating the shape of your neck instead of the shape of your neck pressing up and lifting the weight of your head. It's a reversal of forces. 
not a lack of force. There's tremendous force on the body at all times. It's that the force goes the way it's supposed to be fought against going. The tug of war that we're supposed to win, we start losing. And that tug of war is against gravity. And that's, it's not the technology. Technology is so interesting. It's so wild. It's, it's sparking intelligence in different pieces of our mind. We can see it when we look at how many pieces of our brain are infected or not infected, uh, impacted, maybe infected, who knows, but impacted <laughs> by looking at the blue light screens and these things like there's, there's stimulation in our brains, but there is a lack of stimulation in our bodies in that posture for that amount of time. And that, that is where I really believe that most of our issues are springing from is fixated postures in crappy positions. Mm, that, that I like that uh, kind of cross between stimulating the mind and not stimulating the body. Uh, uh, one of our, our core team members here, Vivek, he likes to say, he and his wife say they know it's a good day when they're physically tired and not meant just mentally tired at the end of the day. So like they've done something with their body that when they go to bed, they feel physically tired and not just mentally tired, which is more of the norm these days. Yeah. I, I and, and I think our bodies are designed to be more physically tired than, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is an off statement. I, I would imagine somebody could probably give me a very healthy argument on this, but, but perhaps our muscles that are designed to literally um, uh, produce wattage, power, mm -hmm. and recover from that and produce wattage and power and recover from that, maybe that production source is sort of like a generator that makes itself better and runs the rest of the organism as opposed to just the electrical source with no degenerate with no regeneration when your brain is just spinning unless you are constantly feeding it a lot of fat a lot of really 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 healthy efficient nutrients it's going to be hard to maintain that energy source providing energy without some other energy source feeding it and i believe that other energy source is the regenerative processes of exercise and movement and health and the regenerative right. processes in between exercise and health, which is the sleeping times, the meditative times, the rest times. That's where all that energy kind of comes from. I know that there's electro, I, I know the Krebs cycle. I know that there's, you know, ATP and ADP. And I know that the mitochondria does what it does. And, and I understand that there are processes that generate energy. But I believe that those processes, as, as much science tends to prove, are best when exercised regularly because that produces more energy. And we talk about, you know, stimulation and um, stimulation being mental or physical is also highly correlated with stress on the body. And stress is often thought of as kind of a negative thing, but everything in life is stress. You know, uh, solving a problem is exciting and stressful at the same time. And lifting something heavy can be exciting and stressful at the same time. And when we have stress throughout the day, um, in, in my experience at least, if it's purely mental stress, your body's mobilizing all of these resources that evolved to deal with a combination of physical and mental stress that we've experienced as humans as we evolved. 
And if you're not doing anything physical, you're mobilizing all of these resources that are meant to be used in a physical way. And then they're just kind of floating around the body confused and maybe not getting used efficiently or kind of have to be put back into storage or, you know, there's, there's just all these, uh, those are very scientific terms, by the way, confused <laughs> resources. And, and nobody understands our stories, wherever they are, unless we can put it into language that makes sense. And I think that like that goes in a really that ties into almost everything I do is the story, the story of health, the story of the body, the story of what's going on in there. And that story is in my head. That is a translation from my spinal nerves to my brain over time, slowly, steadily becoming more and more and more and more sensitive to what's happening within my own body over this now 10 year process of of getting my back better and and a lot of other things that, that happened as a result of that are translations from the spinal nerves to the brain and from the brain through the spinal nerves to the peripheral nervous system. That translation center, in my opinion, is the most important piece of health. Whether it's at the top level in the cranial nerves, where that cranial nerve six is responding to all those strange eye movements or lack of eye movements, from the cell phone or from the fixated spot we're staring at, or whether it's all the way down into the lumbo and lumbar and sacral plexuses, and they're getting a lack of feedback proprioceptively because of a misuse or lack of use of the muscle chains that those nerves feed. That's still translation. The spinal nerves are getting a message in a chemical form, in an energetic form, and they're expressing that message through the cord to the brain and vice versa. And that 31 pairs of spinal nerves and then the cranial nerves up above them need space to operate well. So no matter what we know about what's happening on the inside of the body in its remarkable physiological wonder, it, it is so interesting what's happening in there. And it's all up for debate and none of us really know. We have ideas. We have theories. And we can test a lot of those theories and prove a lot of the pieces of the theories. But none of that is as important in a modern era where technology is taking over for physicality. Nothing is as important as physicality remaining physical. The space at the spinal nerves remaining spacious so that they can operate and translate accurately. The space at the cranial nerves where the head and the neck meet staying spacious, creating enough blood flow at that triangle of muscles where the back of the skull meets the neck, the suboccipital triangle, making sure there's enough room there that healthy blood flow can go up and healthy nerve flow can go down. That's all of our coordination, different things like that from that area. These pieces of physiology, the structural pieces of physiology, in my opinion, become more important than what's happening internally. Because without space, those internal messages are going to be mistranslated. Our autonomic nervous system is going to start going haywire. And no matter what the stresses are that we're supposed to be dealing with, we're going to be dealing with more and we're going to be making them. Yeah, and that's a, that's a kind of a self, uh, what do you call it, a, a feedback loop, a negative feedback yes, loop exactly. is what I'm looking for. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, we, so we're looking. 
Yeah, vicious cycle, exactly. So we're looking at this, or we're talking about right now, creating space um, along the spine, along the nerve pathways and, and in the cranial nerve insertion points and things. And what we're talking about here is, um, you know, you, you're obviously going to be able to explain this better than me, but I'm trying to summarize what I'm hearing is that, uh, you know, certain postures and certain positions and mechanics uh, cause tension or compression or squeezing, so to speak, on our body's communication pathways, which is that nervous system. And that not only affects, that not only affects pain and movement function, but it affects the ability to, um, you know, have good posture. It affects your organs and their organ function because all of your organs receive instructions via the nervous system and other systems, of course, too, but um, strongly from the nervous system. And it impacts the function of those organs. And then, you know, the vagus nerve we can dig into, especially just a little bit, because uh, you mentioned it in your book, and it's also a huge component of heart rate variability. And, you know, it's a very important piece of the autonomic nervous system that we talk about in the HRV world. Um, so, so yeah, so let's see, where do we dig in first? I mean, um, let's, let me uh, summarize real quick what foundation training started out as and how it's kind of evolved. So you're looking at um, creating space, decompressing, so to speak, um, stretching, strengthening, allowing for better breathing, and you have a big emphasis on the posterior chain muscles. So maybe that's where we can kind of start. Why the posterior chain? Why not? That was no, there was a lot more thought than that into it. Um, <laughs> so first, we use the term decompression substantially in foundation training. The term decompression breathing is a principle of our work, a primary principle. And it's one of the most important things that we do. And every now and then, Understandably, somebody will believe that I'm saying that we decompress individual discs of the spine as if we were a DRX decompression machine or a decompression table or some passive force providing decompression to your body. That's not what we do. The term decompression in foundation training is the expansion of the axial skeleton. That's decompression. It's the decompression of the torso. The weight of the torso atop the pelvis in particular and on top of the low spine in particular. So we are not trying to give your L5, L4 herniation one more millimeter of space with decompression breathing. We are trying to alleviate the reason that that area needs more space, which is the focal point of pressure that it is holding onto under the weight of the torso, we decompress the entire rib cage. We lengthen the spine. We make that weight more evenly distributed throughout the spinal muscles and the hip muscles. And in turn, you get less symptoms at that level that you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Once we get past that decompressive process, we can access the posterior chain. Because what we found over years and years and years of playing with this is that there are certain length discrepancies at the lower spine and upper spine that sort of take the requirement of the posterior chain 
out of the equation for us in a sense. And that requirement is huge. Our, our natural human movement pattern is propulsion. It's pulling. There's no muscles in the body that push. They only pull. And the strongest of those muscles exist along the posterior chain of our body. The hamstrings, the glute muscles, the calf muscles, the back extensor muscles, they couple together in an integrated chain of movement to first absorb the weight of our hip hinge, eccentrically loading the posterior chain, gliding and guiding the hips back against that lengthening tension of the posterior chain, and then they concentrically propel us forward out of that hip hinge, standing us upright, taking us from quadruped to biped and stabilizing us. Once we're upright, they work in sync with many other muscle chains in the body. If you haven't looked up the work of Thomas Myers and seen things like anatomy trains, I always suggest that to people. I think that's an anatomy book you can read a hundred times and learn something, maybe dozens of things new each time you read it. It's very interesting. But Excellent. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really good stuff. That's in my Amazon uh, cart, so now yeah, it's going to be moved to the uh, purchase. Yeah, it's just it's it's not an anatomy book; it's a story that uses anatomy to tell it. It's really well done. I, I have massive respect for the work of of the whole Thomas Myers crew. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the posterior chain. The posterior chain is a primary prop- propellant, prop- not propellant. That's like gases, propulsion uh, <laughs> unit of the body. And it's from the heels to the back of the head. It's the muscles along the back of us, and they're very powerful, and they're very strong. And and when our body collapses inward at the low spine a little bit too much, if you think about the distance of the rib cage to the pelvis being a little bit too short, a little bit too tight, a little bit too under the weight of everything above it, the posterior chain tends not to fire as a unit. And we become abdomen, quadricep, dependent and hip flexor dependent instead of our posterior chain eccentrically absorbing the force and weight of our torso as our hips draw back in a hip hinge our hip flexors force us into that hip hinge and with it comes flexion of the spine at the lowest point that flexion of the spine further disintegrates the muscles of the posterior chain. The further your lower spine flexes, the less likely you're going to recruit your hamstrings and your glutes into whatever movement you're doing. So we need to remind the lower spine how to stay stable against the rotation of the hip joints and the hamstring tension that comes with that rotation of the hip joints in a hip hinge. And notice that A hip hinge is walking when you do it on one leg and then the other and then the other. A hip hinge is picking your kid up. It's brushing your teeth. It's the fundamental range of motion of the human body. And it's also the fundamental breakdown point of the human body if that posterior chain can't support it properly. So what we do in foundation training is we target the eccentric absorptive capacity of the posterior chain meaning we teach the strongest muscles in the body first how to absorb force as we slowly lengthen them 
we teach them isometrically to remain long and powerful, and then we train them dynamically to go from long to short powerfully. We are retraining the muscle connections in an integrated fashion so that the most powerful muscles in the body, the posterior chain muscles, become the dominant muscles in our bodies. And that, that that's so... Uh... That's exactly why in my mind it can bridge the gap for so many different people from so many different backgrounds is if you can imagine you're, you just mentioned walking as a hip hinge and picking somebody up like or <laughs> picking somebody, anybody up um, or anything up um, is a hip hinge and these just normal day-to-day movements. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, so to speak, you've got athletes who are trying to create tons of power. Um, they're trying to sprint, they're trying to jump, they're trying to do these powerful movements, and they may have been developing powerful muscles, but possibly imbalanced, uh, possibly not fully developing the posterior chain effectively. So you can see how this can apply to such a wide range of use cases. And we've seen that it does. You know, we've really seen that it applies to a surprising amount of people, which is something that I certainly had never planned, you know, I'm not a businessman. I have a business, which is interesting, but I have a, I have a CEO. You've met him. You've spoken with him. Ian, Ian is our, our business guy. I like to just think about the body a lot and teach people about the body a lot and find those relatable common themes among most people's chronic injuries, because I think that's one of the most interesting things in the entire human species is that as many different versions of us as there are, we all break down in pretty similar ways. And that to me is just such a common theme. It's such a commonality among us. It's bigger than, than so many other things because we learn so many different physical skills in life and mental skills in life. And everybody's journey of, you know, 50 to a hundred years carries with it unimaginable physical demands that their body somehow gets through. And yet, all of us break down in very similar ways. All of us respond to lack of movement in very similar ways. If somebody has a spinal cord injury, they're going to respond in a very similar way to somebody else with a similar spinal cord injury, even though their life leading up to that point was so different. And those physical commonalities make me want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding how many more like that exist. So then I go into exploring what you do with the HRV work, the heart rate variability work, and I see that one of the most simplistic things we can do is really learn to understand that interspersed moment between our heart rate. And that can tell us so much about so many hormonal things in our body, the autonomic nervous system in particular. And you know what the key ingredient to the HRV monitoring is, is vagal nerve tone. Mm -hmm. The key ingredient to turning on your posterior chain properly is the muscle that the vagus nerve pierces, which is the SCM in some people, or travels along in some people. That SCM, the sternocleidomastoid muscle, connects three points of your body that are incredibly important to overall spinal stability and the ability to perform healthy, powerful posterior chain movement. That SCM connects the base of your skull in the back 
to the clavicles and the sternum in the front. All muscles can do is pull, nothing else. When we pull the top of the head away from the clavicles, it's going to lengthen the SCM, not looking up, but literally pulling the top of the head, the, the, the back of the head up away from the chest and clavicles is going to put our sternocleidomastoid muscle, the SCM muscle, in its healthiest posture so that every time we take a deep breath or even a shallow breath, any rib cage expansion will utilize the SCM muscle to lift. When the SCM muscle goes from long to short, which is pretty much what muscles do, is go from long to short. If the base of the skull is lifting up, the clavicles will be lifted subtly towards the neck, like they're looking almost towards the horizon instead of looking down. The same is true of the sternum. That SCM involvement and strength and tone provides remarkable amounts of neural input to the spine. And more important than that, when your SCM muscles are used properly, where the base of the skull is up and pulling away from the clavicles, instead of anterior head carriage, where the base of the skull is sort of collapsed into the neck and the chin lifts a little bit, when that sternocleidomastoid muscle is working well, it is the grand stabilizer of the spine. It allows all those 31 pairs of spinal nerves I was talking about, the space they need to translate their message as well. It allows the vagus nerve and the other cranial nerves to have their space because it lifts the base of the skull away from that first cervical vertebra. And in doing so, it creates space at the brainstem and its few parts as it travels down into the neck. So when I saw that connection between heart rate variability, which is the grand indicator of the internal physiology with the SCM connection that I teach so often and the vagus nerve connection that I teach so often in structural biomechanical integrity, I was, I was stoked. I was so happy. I was like, this is going to be really interesting. Like what we're going to start to find is that there is a biomechanical component to impacting HRV, whether positive or negative. And we will also be able to use HRV to find the most ideal, whether it be towards autonomic intensity or parasympathetic relaxation, we're going to find the ideal breathing postures and patterns to, to get there. And yeah, this there's so much that can happen. It's cool. Apologize for that. Um, I just, it's exciting stuff and I didn't want to interrupt because there's so much powerful information in there. And if, if anyone listening is like me, they're, they were quietly sitting here trying to raise the back of their head towards the ceiling and see if I can get into the position comfortably that you're describing and noticing that I probably got about an inch taller in the process. Yeah, you, you and will. You will. Your posture drastically impacts your HRV instantly. And so, you know, basic examples of that are if you're sitting, it's different than when you're standing, which is different than when you're lying down. Immediately when you change these positions, it your HRV score changes. It's like live biofeedback for your position. And what you can do is uh, even if you're sitting, 
the back angle at which you're sitting. So if you're kind of hunched over forward, your HRV score is going to be different than if you're sitting up straight. And it's going to be different than if you're sitting with some back support, kind of leaning back on something, for example. So here's, I have a question on that. Mm-hmm. You say different. The HRV scores are going to be different. Can good or bad be used, or is it more of just a broad spectrum and it's not so much good or bad versus sympathetic and parasympathetic? So what it's going to be is there's definitely sympathetic and parasympathetic aspects to it. But when I say different is the body or HRV is heavily response or heavily responds to uh, instantaneous stressors and, and mechanical stressors included. So Interestingly, um, so there's a, a quantified self guy named Paul LaFontaine who does HRV experimentation, self-experimentation, and he found that if he tilted his head a certain way, that he would get more parasympathetic expression typically than if he sat, tilted his head forward and down, um, so to speak. And he was measuring HRV to determine that on himself. Um, from the sitting posture perspective, uh, some people seem to increase their HRV by sitting more upright, and, but others who I would theorize maybe have a lot of mechanical or structural strain that doesn't allow them to comfortably sit up straight, their HRV actually goes down when they're trying to sit up straight because they're probably working against all of these postural, you know, bad patterns that they've developed. So... The person who's trying that what I what I believe really expresses itself is the work we've done versus the work we're doing on ourselves. And I think that that's one of the biggest changes a person can make is to start actively really trying to repair themselves and improve themselves in, in lots of different ways throughout their lifetime. And what that leads to is this idea that the person who's just sitting up straight, like they, they haven't done the other work. If they're experiencing major issues from sitting up straight, if sitting up straight is providing a stress on their body. That process is probably because there's some hypermobile areas and some hypomobile areas. There's areas that move too much and areas that move too little along the spine. And when they just sit up straight with no further instruction, no further coaching, no further understanding, they're going to extend the hypermobile areas and they will remain rigid at the less movable areas and it will further exacerbate the process along their spine of having areas of focal points of tension. Those are the areas that are becoming rigid and areas of less tension than it requires, which are the areas that are becoming too mobile. Now, as you get better and better at this idea that I call decompression breathing, you start to alleviate isolated focal points of pressure along the spine and share the force more evenly among the muscles that surround it. Yeah, that's that sounds huge. And I'm glad you brought up breathing because that was going to be an integral piece that I was going to add in as well is that um, different breathing patterns also affect HRV pretty much instantly. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people do with HRV is they try to use it for live biofeedback to regain the more natural breathing patterns that um, basically cause less stress each breath on the body and also uh, activate the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system more, uh, more powerfully to get full benefit out of all of their breaths and also re um, reduce 
or rebalance the nervous system so that they're not kind of in that fight or flight mode unnecessarily. And it, it all kind of centers around diaphragmatic breathing and uh, using the proper breathing mechanics that we kind of naturally evolved to. And interestingly is people, a lot of people struggle with this at first and it takes a lot of practice. You know, basically uh, we don't have a lot of structural kind of uh, recommendations for folks to make that easier aside from practicing the breathing pattern and it gets easier with time and the HRV responds more quickly with time. But what you're saying is there's probably some structural things we can do to make that natural breathing pattern more accessible. I believe so. And I believe that those structural things have a lot to do with... So one of the most interesting things about HRV is that stability is a negative, which I think is really interesting. I think that what you seem to want with HRV from everything I've read on it, and what I personally feel in my own body, is the more variability, the more your body is kind of naturally responding to the chaos of life in a healthy chaotic pattern, controlled chaos a universal energy. Whereas the person that is trying to control themselves a little bit too much might remain in too high of a sympathetic tone because of rigidity. It's as if their stress response is more rigid than it should be. They're not blowing with the wind. They're standing rigid against it. And the better your biomechanics are, the more you're going to blow with the wind. The more your body is going to be strong enough and stable enough to move in any direction it needs to with fluidity. When you sit up straight with a strong body, you don't even feel it. It doesn't change your mechanics very much. It simply changes the angle of your mechanics. But your mechanics stay the same. Your breathing pattern should remain relatively the same with mostly inhalation filling up the lungs and then some inhalation expanding the abdomen. The better you can get at using your whole body to breathe, I would imagine the less impactful positions will be on your heart rate, with the obvious exception of like when you stand up from sitting down, there is a massive volume shift and blood volume shift. And because of that, things happen. But otherwise, if you're sitting and you simply change your position sitting, it shouldn't be that drastic, in my opinion, if your biomechanics are doing what they're meant to. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And, you know, before the show, we talked about uh, quantification and qualification and how to do research in different areas of health. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, people may have heard me talk about or heard other people's talk, people talk about is that a lot of studies that are done in research kind of take an average person who may already be subclinically sick and uh, runs studies on these populations and and says, okay, well, for these people, it happened this way. So this must be the way it's supposed to be for everyone. And they don't take into account maybe that not everyone's supposed to have digestive issues or not everyone's supposed to have, um, you know, a C-shaped spine or something like that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) we We take a sample and we assume. And... I think that science, the scientific method is incredible. Science is incredible. Evidence, clinical evidence, it's extraordinary. It gives you a really wonderful place to start from, but it's not the be all end all. And if all we ever look at is evidence, we're never going to make progress ever. 
And progress comes with adventure. It comes with getting out on a limb a little bit, trying to see if something else might work. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe we can do this more efficiently. Maybe we can impact more things than we think we can currently impact, but we're never going to know unless we experiment. And experimentation yields eventual evidence, but not one study at a time. It takes lifetimes to really see what works and what doesn't work. It takes so many variables from so many different types of body of so many different ages and so many different lifestyles to truly understand what's going on. And I don't know if it's within any individual human being's capacity to understand what's going on. But groups of people with common goals can eventually get there, I believe. But it's not because we looked at the shape of 10,000 people's spines. It's not because we looked at the heart rate of 100,000 people in one culture. It's not because we looked at the diet of 100,000 people or 2 million people in one culture. That is not representative of the human species. It is representative of a small sample of the human species. And if there's one thing I know, though we feel a lot of the same issues and we break down very similarly, the way that we feel them, the sensations they cause within our bodies and brains are so different person to person that the subjective response should not truly yield a guaranteed objective answer from anybody because everybody's response in life and everybody's subjective experience in life is different from everybody else's. And we can't take what happens in somebody else as what will happen in us ever because we never know. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. I, that's a great, yeah. It's so science and studies and, and generalizations and kind of things like that give us a, a starting point, like you said, to, to think about things from a, a different angle or to say, this is what, how things could be potentially. And then it's up to us to kind of take this uh, into and try to incorporate into our own lives or try to experiment with our own situation and see what's going on. And that's actually why in our app and everything, we really emphasize with HRV. So we, we, we recognize there's this phenomenon called HRV and, you know, our heart uh, rate varies every single beat and it responds to stress and the vagus nerve and all of these different things. Um, but you know, what's a good HRV score is, a, is one of the most common questions that we get. And we run population analysis on our database and we look at research from tons of different studies and we come up with some kind of, quote, normative HRV values that are kind of averages for ages and demographics and things. And we say, OK, here it is. This is maybe something that you should look at to try to understand, like, where your starting point is. But in reality, that's like 1% or something. And the other 99% of the time, what we're telling people is, okay, we know that there's this physiological response to stress. Now use that as a self-experimentation tool to see what different things in your life are causing the most stress or what, it, when you make little tweaks to your sleep, is it really giving you the results that you're looking for, or really helping with your 
um, you know, recovery or something like that. And it's all about comparing you to yourself over time more than it is comparing you to the rest of the population. It's a great measure. It's a great measuring tool because it takes everybody else out of the equation. You've started with basic research, which is excellent. You know what I mean? You've started with a commonality that was found over time. But what that eventually became is the starting point for everybody else that's going to be investigating themselves, which is brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Like, and it's the, like, the, the, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that the, the thing that comes out of that is when you have so many people doing this self-experimentation is then again, patterns emerge from that. And we find that things like sleep quality are impacting almost everyone. And things like, you know, people who don't eat vegetables typically do worse than people who do eat vegetables <laughs> and, you know, things like that. And so, so those... What the HRV uh, research is sort of telling us is that the things we believed impact health, impact health. You know what I mean? Like the stuff we believe helps us and hurts us is in fact some of the things that help us and hurt us. And here's a way that you can become more sensitive to the specific things that help and hurt you. And it's that sensitivity training that I think might be the most important thing our entire human species can go through is what is happening in me. Not sensitivity training, like don't don't call gay people gay and fat people fat. They are who they are and they're wonderful and who cares? It's not that kind of sensitivity. It's like internal, this is what I'm made of. This is what I'm feeling right now. This is how I feel when I'm operating in a good way. This is how I feel when I'm operating in a negative way. There's one element when I, I should make decisions when I'm operating in a good way. I should live life when I'm operating in a good way. And when I'm operating in a negative way, I should take the steps, whether it be sleep or nutrition or mindfulness or exercise, whatever that step might be, to get my rhythm back in the good zone so I can then continue living my life and making decisions. I think way too many people live their life and make decisions in that sympathetic state, in that hyper-aware, hypersensitive, but desensitized state. Yeah, that's that's huge. And, you know, life kind of pushes us in that direction. It's um, a balance of time and energy is we always feel like we have more things to do than we have time in the day to, to complete them. And uh, so we kind of get in a hurry and uh, we're inundated by stimulation from tons of different sources and kind of along those same lines. Um, we have an obsession with data, right? And so data is kind of uh, our way of trying to structure that sensitivity. It's trying to kind of our way of trying to understand more about the world and about ourselves through numbers and quantification and things. And some, you know, I'm a tech guy and I like data just as much as the next person. I, I do a lot of my work around data, but um, at the same time, people, I try to harp on, this is a tool. Uh, the tool that we've made at least is a tool that's trying to help you with become more self-aware and you don't need external data sources necessarily to build self-awareness, but it, it can help if you're looking at the right key kind of data points. And you shouldn't really inundate yourself with data just for the sake of data. And so like, you know, we, we try to have 
step trackers and um, we, you know, track heart rate and blood markers and HRV and, um, you know, we have quantified sleep trackers and quantify this, quantify that. It's, there's tons and tons of ways that we're experimenting as a culture with gaining some more sensitivity through external means. But uh, some of it is is just kind of pruning away some of that. It's great to experiment with all of that and see if any of it adds any value. But at some point you have to say, okay, am I able to make decisions off this data? And is it worth the time that it takes to collect and analyze it? And then how can this help me create better self-awareness to where I can then make better decisions and not have to rely on on it so much? Um, and if all you're doing is quantifying everything that you do and then telling everybody about your quantifications, you're probably not enjoying the quality that comes with that because you're spending all of your time analyzing or expressing the data. And that's pretty much it. Or seeking the ability to perfect your scores, which a lot of people get stuck in. They go less at how do I feel and more at the competitive process of trying to improve the quantification. Right. And yeah. And it's, there's a spectrum to it, all of it, of course. I mean, you know, if you're, yeah. And if you're an athlete at the highest levels, then there's going to be quantification that is just, if, if incrementally increasing your performance by a small percentage is high priority, then you're going to end up quantifying things a lot more than other people and, and having to pay attention to those marginal gains and um, what people often mistake is that they want to be like a, an elite athlete, but they don't realize that when you get to that level and you're just trying to like move a number up a little bit, there's an excitement to it, but you've lost kind of the original pleasure of the sport most likely. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah uh, professional athletes. I mean, even the ones that love their sport, which I, I, to become a professional athlete, with the exception of like maybe tennis or golf where there's like really heavy push from parents. Sometimes you got to love your sport. You know, there's always the story of the Andre Agassiz and people like that that were kind of forced into loving their sport, but most professional athletes really have to love it. But there is an exchange when you're a professional athlete, you're going against all the other professional athletes and that quantification becomes massive. The difference is usually that quantification is being done by a team of coaches and what they come to is then going to be trained to you, coached to you. You are going to be learning along the way from people that are doing the science, doing the analysis. So your time is spent doing the work as far as physical work or physical recovery. In the other guy and girl, the accountant that has an eight-hour-a-day job five days a week and then comes home and is doing that same degree of accounting, of accounting for themselves – they're doing all that analysis. They're doing everything from HRV and pulse rate to respiration rate. They're, they're, they're at their naturopath getting their blood drawn every two weeks. They're doing VO2. There's so many quantifications we can make that take us out of life. When what might help that person the most is just to do some yoga, do some breathing, do some foundation training, go for a walk, take a nap, play with your kids. More than understanding that you need to do those things. Just do those things. And that is the difference between the elite pro athlete and the everyday person. It's most of the pro athletes that are during their active time of competing as a pro top athlete, they are 100% focused on that and very little else. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, that makes complete sense. And that was definitely a more eloquent way to put it. I I didn't mean to step on the toes of the athletes that um, there's probably a lot of listeners who are athletes that definitely enjoy their sport and also uh, enjoy making those incremental improvements. Absolutely. So absolutely. Definitely. And uh, so, you know, uh, talking about the different ways that you can integrate these practices into your life, you know, from a quantification standpoint, we like to try to stay as behind the scenes as possible in your routine and your life and integrate into your daily life without taking up all your time and stuff. And I think that some of your recommendations for um, improving the biomechanics of your body and stuff is also to integrate it into daily life and to not not try to set hours of time aside each day to to make these improvements. You're talking about a concept in your book that you call small daily doses, right? And I think it's kind of relates back to what you talked about, uh, complacent adaptations. Um, when you have throughout the day, all of these tasks that you're doing, interacting with screens or sitting or, um, you know, even exercising, um, you may be reinforcing bad structural positions all day, every day, and making these complacent adaptations in a negative way. So it can be both favorable from a time perspective and favorable from a results perspective to sprinkle in small daily doses of these exercises like foundation training type exercises. Is that, am I on the right track with that? Yeah, I think very much so. I think everybody does it a little bit differently. Um, but for the most part, my recommendation is five, 10 minutes a day. Once you learn it, it takes a little while to learn. There's a very real learning curve in foundation training, even for the best athletes in the world. Uh, it's hard. There's nothing I can do to this work that makes it easy. I wish it was easier. I wish it was like, I wish that you could know it, that you're doing it perfect right now, but there's a learning curve. It's kind of like learning a physical language. You're learning a little bit of additional sensitivity within your body. You're learning a bit a bit of additional sensitivity to respiration. And you're learning a little bit of additional sensitivity to proprioception, where you are in space and how you're holding yourself and what you're using to hold yourself. And, and the that, starting point... Oh, go ahead. The starting point is decompression. The starting point is decompression breathing. And we then tie that into something called pelvic anchoring. And it is the combination of the upward outward expansiveness at the axial skeleton, the center, the rib cage and the spine going up and out and away in all directions. And then this nice sling of muscle chain that lifts up from the center of your arch up the inside of your leg to the inside of your groin and inserts at a place called your pubic symphysis. And that chain pulls the base of the pelvis and the arches towards each other. So we have that downward and upward pull from the arches to the pelvis and from the pelvis to the arches coupled from or coupled against an upward outward pull of the axis, the spine and the rib cage, particularly and the head lifting upwards that creates sort of a finger trap situation where the center stabilizes in response to the pull in either direction away from it. The center being your pubic symphysis, the pelvic structure. All right. So what we're doing is we're teaching the muscles that directly connect to the pelvis to operate in an opposite trajectory. Normally, it is as if gravity is just sort of resting on them and the torso is just sort of resting on the pelvis. So the pelvis learns to absorb the weight of the torso a bit. Eventually, yeah, so 
eventually the spine does the same thing and absorbs the weight of the torso above it. That's that little bit of spinal herniation and spinal flexion so much of us get. And we don't want, what we don't want is to just kind of complacently let gravity act upon our skeleton with no involvement from our soft tissue. And I know that obviously is impossible generally, but uh, what we're talking about is shifting the load from the skeleton to the musculature. The easiest way that I can explain that is that our body has two support structure systems. Our secondary, less useful support structure is rigid in nature. It's ligaments and it's joints. It's connective tissue that is non-elastic. It's very rigid and it provides a fail-proof barrier. A non-elastic barrier to an end range of motion before that joint fails. The primary stability structures that we have are the muscles that connect to joints and connect point A to point B or C and they pull us into positions and they pull joints into positions and they are the puppet strings that make our puppet body move. When we are stuck in secondary stability, it's because we have allowed our body to stop resisting well and it simply falls into itself and collapses wherever it will collapse and compresses wherever it will compress to find comfort. And eventually that becomes incredibly uncomfortable and painful for a lot of people. So what we want to do is we want to remind the body of its primary stability function in muscles and use those muscles to pull joints repetitively into very powerful positions and then hold those positions isometrically while we challenge the biomechanics of the rib cage in those difficult positions, breathing very deeply, very expansively, and very slowly to really challenge the biomechanics of breathing against the isometric biomechanics of posture. And why why start with isometrics? Because we got to learn how to we got to learn how to stand before we learn how to move. You know, <clears throat> you got you got to learn how to walk before you learn how to run. And then you can learn how to fly. That's the Nietzsche quote. The Nietzsche quote that became famous from Eddie Murphy in Coming to America: "One must not fly into flying." And that's the idea with movement. That's the idea with all of this stuff: is slow and steady. Take the time to learn how your body feels stable. Take time to learn how to breathe as well as you possibly can as your body learns to feel stable and then take those stable positions and that improved breath pattern into dynamic ranges of motion. And we do that. We have substantial amounts of dynamic movements, but you have to learn the isometrics first. You have to learn the decompression breathing pattern first, and then you can go into the more dynamic processes of foundation training. Most people find that they improve quite a lot in simply learning the isometrics. Okay. And so, you know, if you just kind of blow past that and just go exercise and do things like that, it's pretty, sounds like it'd be feasible that you'd be reinforcing those areas of rigidity and also potentially continuing to cause hypermobility in those areas that are hypermobile and just reinforcing some of those bad patterns and causing more work or just kicking the can down the road. Very accurate. Very, very accurate. Okay. And so with, you know, I would hypothesize given like what we've talked about today that 
integrating foundation training into your routine and getting to the point where you can achieve those positions without a ton of strain on the body through practice. You know, like you said, there's there's going to be some some challenging practice to get there. But when you can get there, I would imagine that generally your heart rate variability would be a lot higher and you'd be a lot more able to access the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system in a variety of positions and even potentially while moving more effectively than you would if you have a lot of these rigid structures in the body um, or hypermobile structures that are causing stress on other structures. That's my hypothesis. I think that's a very reasonable hypothesis. And I think that I can come up with several thousand people that have been doing my work for the past several years that would agree with you from their own personal individual experiences of what it has done for them to learn biomechanics first and then move on with life and integrate those biomechanics into their activities of daily living as simple as reaching for something in the fridge, opening the oven, brushing your teeth, washing your face, all those things. All of those are opportunities to improve yourself, not just basic hygienic, but spinal and, and hip hygienic as well. Mm-hmm. And even just things like exercise. So a lot of times, like what we'll be thinking about when we're exercising, for example, if you go for a run, is I'm improving my cardiovascular health right now, and that's the only thing that I'm doing, right? And, um, you know, there's so much more to it for all the way down to if you're slamming your heels into the ground, um, yeah, you may be improving aerobic capacity or something like that, but you might also be destroying your ankles and knees and hips. And then I'm sure you can come up with a thousand other examples of things that people might be doing to their biomechanics and their structure during that activity. I'll tell you what, I believe in the resilience of the human body. And I think that even if people are harming themselves, most of us are going to be just fine. You know what I mean? If you want to make the improvement, what you're going to find is that there is a sensitivity that will increase. And with increased sensitivity comes two things, more feeling good and potentially more feeling bad because you're more aware. For a lot of people that are unwinding a lifetime of physical maladaptations, small or big as they are, they're going to find that with increased sensitivity comes a bit of pain initially, like an arc that they have to get over to the other side of. As they're climbing that sensitivity arc and becoming more aware of a few things that might have been involved in that initial pain they found as they unwind themselves, each new pain sensation is an opportunity to understand more about your body and improve more about your body. And each one of those arcs that you get past, whether it be a 10-minute twinge or a two-day tweak, every time you get past one of those, you're going to be improving your structural competence and your mental competence. You will believe in your ability to improve yourself more and more and more. And with that confidence comes incredible hormonal secretions that will make your body even more resilient. It will make your body feel even better. It will relax your tissue more deeply and it will help you get better at finding relaxation or parasympathetic tone throughout your body. It's a, mm, that's so powerful. It's a discipline. 
It's an every day I'm going to try to do a little better than the day before, not in some Tony Robbins way where you're making more money than the last week or making more impact on the world than the last week. But your job is to try to understand your environment, your body a little bit better. And with that will come improved relationships in life, in improved interactions physically and mentally with yourself and with others. And that's what it's all about. That's why your work is important. That's why my work is important. It's not about back pain. It's not about heart rate variability. It's about a human being constantly improving their skills in life in such a way that it helps them live life. And the better you get at the skills of life, some of which are pain, some of which are health and happiness, the better you get at navigating those, the more likely you're going to have a major impact and a major influence on the world around you, whether it's big or small. And that's what I do this for. That's what I think is so important. The more you can become sensitive to yourself, the more you can really improve the lives of people around you. And I think that's kind of what we're supposed to do here. So if it's tough, so be it. It's tough. You got it, but you got to do it anyway. You got to learn the stuff. You got to get better. That's that's huge, and that's I'm glad you went that direction because I had a couple bullets, and I wanted to talk about the psychology of all this. And you know, you you have a line in the book that which is called True to Form, which we'll talk about uh, where people can get it and stuff. But um, equating physical ability with self worth, and there's so much psychology that links to our our body and our our biomechanics and our physical being. Um, and confidence is such an important part of our physiology as well. So there's a study, I interviewed a researcher named Dan Quintana who researches heart rate variability, oxytocin, and um, psychological uh, states, basically, um, for lack of a better encompassing word. But uh, he and his colleagues ran a study on comparing psychological conditions to heart rate variability, which heart rate variability, of course, just being an internal physiological process. Um, many people might not have even originally linked it to what you're thinking can impact your internal physiology. And what he found is that, um, the to summarize it, the expression of worry as a as a expression was the single biggest predictor in reductions in heart rate variability even more so than clinically diagnosed depression clinically diagnosed anxiety um, it didn't matter if you'd been diagnosed with one of these conditions or not if you're worrying a lot then your heart rate variability tends to be lower which is overall kind of uh, indicator of health and resilience and all that stuff. And so um, they were only looking at psychological conditions. So it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like that was over, you know, nutrition or posture or anything like that. It was just looking at states of the mind. And um, but what's interesting about that is that it's kind of like, again, that um, that cycle, that feedback loop, that what happens in the mind uh, is reflected in the body and what happens in the body is reflected in the mind. And it's what we're talking about here is a lot more than just posture. And, you know, Eric, you, well, we had a brief chance to meet in person. I saw you present at Ancestral Health Symposium a couple of years back. And uh, being uh, there face to face, one of the things that sticks out in my mind is that you have phenomenal posture and it looks natural. I even remember it years later. But um, what we're talking about here is 
beyond just having good posture and appearing to be confident, it's creating capability and ability and um, the ability to do more complex movements, different movements to overcome physical challenges and feel like if you step off a curb unexpectedly that you're not going to fall and break your ankle or you'll be less likely to at least, um, you know, things like that. There's, there's examples of, uh, you know, you may have heard of like a petite female who got into martial arts and all of a sudden kind of maybe was shy before and then blossomed into somebody who was a little bit more confident because she could handle herself physically and that's kind of like a you know more of a self defense story, but it's again it's kind of um, building one, that they're one and the same. Physical confidence instills self confidence. That's not my idea. That's that's just kind of the way that it works in the body, as it turns out. It's part of the aging process, in fact. But what I think is so. Number one, that's what, what you were just talking about is really cool, and thank you for the the very nice compliment on, on my posture and all that. I mean, you know, fake it till you make it right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, exactly. do, I do have very strong posture because I, I live and teach a program that is based on lengthening and strengthening the body to its maximum capacity within body weight. And I have lengthened and strengthened myself for many, many years under the guise of foundation training and under the expectation that I need to be able to teach this as well as humanly possible, which means I have to be able to understand this as well as I can possibly understand this, which means I better practice it every single day. And I do. So since you and I first met at the Ancestral Health Symposium in, I believe, the end of August of 2014, we, at the Berkeley campus, which was incredible, by the way, like what a what a spot to lecture. I felt very proud of that time. Um, we went on my wife and I, now my wife, at the time she was my girlfriend, Jen. Uh, we've spent the last three years traveling nonstop in an RV around the country and also flying a couple times, around, you know, not around the world, but to different parts of the world. And I really put my back injury to a major test for the last three years numerous 10 to 12 to 15 hour drives. We drove across the country three separate times. We put about 60,000 miles on the RV in three years. And I'm better than when I started, which is blowing my mind. Because most people you think of in that on the road lifestyle tend to be a little bit lazy and tend to be a little bit out of shape. But we've sort of started a community, not a community, because there's only a handful of us, but several of my doctor friends and their wives are on the road. And we're starting to teach and treat on the road. And I don't know, it's the craziest thing, but it actually makes you a little bit healthier because it's harder to be healthy. And you have to really learn what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to, to stay healthy. And if the stress of life is the wind, you really learn how to blow with the wind in an RV with your wife. You really learn how to go with things and how to become less rigid and more strong because the two should not be a direct relationship. They should be an indirect relationship. The stronger you are mentally and physically, the more adaptable you should be. That ability to adapt to lots of different situations in life has made me a much better man 
I suggest getting on the road to anybody that has the ability to do so for a while. It's made our relationship stronger. It's made my brain more creative and it's made my body more adaptable and more reactive because I had to get myself out of pain a lot of times. Like I would literally get out of the RV and have to spend 20 minutes figuring out how I'm not going to feel this way anymore. And every single time I did, I was able to get myself out. I was able to get myself further down the line of understanding my personal biomechanics. It was the, it was the best experience I ever had in my life. And now three years later, we got a baby coming down the line. We got a baby that's going to be here in about three weeks, roughly. That's the estimation. Oh, exciting times. <laughs> like it's, it's so, so since I met you a few years ago, three and a half years, or yeah, a little over three years ago, it's been quite a ride, quite a, quite a life. And uh, I will say that I tested my theory as well as I possibly could and as thoroughly as I possibly could. And it gave me a deeper understanding of myself and my work as a result. That's awesome. I think that we're going to have to connect separately about some of that because I think I've been on a pretty much similar journey since we met as well. Um, I was not married at the time. I am now and uh, quit the corporate job that I had at the time and traveled for two years, um, a year internationally and a year domestically and worked on this business and uh, just worked on uh, researching and kind of improving my understanding of the body and testing out different things while traveling and kind of exposing myself to other cultures and different areas of the world in the U.S. and stuff. So um, tons of time on planes, tons of time on the road. We'll have to share stories, maybe go on a trip sometime. <laughs> we need to. And you know who I, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this or not. I don't, I, you know, I, I always mention other people on podcasts. I think there's just a ton of interesting people in the world. Um, there's a guy, he's, he's my brother-in-law, but before that, he's the guy that introduced me to my wife and who, who is his sister. And he's my old training partner from back in college in Orlando and been friends for many, 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 many years. Uh, but he just left a highly decorated position of 17. He was a firefighter with Orlando fire department for 17 years. I mean, if you talk about the importance of heart rate variability, there is probably no community other than maybe active military in which heart rate variability can tell them more about what they should and shouldn't do for themselves than the first responder community. And mm, Jesse, yeah, my brother-in-law, Jesse Salas, this, the firefighter, of all the firefighters I've ever met, of which there are many, I've met a lot of first responders along the way, and a lot of my close friends in life have been firefighters. He is by far the healthiest. He has taught hundreds, if not thousands, of firefighters along the way of his career how to keep themselves healthy. If you wanted to talk to a guy who is living the life of figuring out what's good for you and chasing it as hard as you can. He's the guy and he's, he's seen the worst experienced the worst. And he has figured out every step of the way, how to find homeostasis within himself. It's really remarkable. And, uh, he's actually since left the department and is working very, very heavily with foundation training now, bringing it into the first responder world, which has been quite a, uh, they've received it extremely well in the past couple of years. But that oh, guy, that's I mean, huge. as far as somebody who is dealing with the major, major stresses of life, including a 17 year career of sleep deprivation. I mean, if that guy can find center, anybody can, you know? Yeah, that's, that's huge. The first responder community, I mean, um, everyone can understand huge props to the amount of stress that those folks deal with, uh, structurally and internally and, and psychologically, um, heart rate variability 
like has a similar story likewise to what you're talking about is um dealing with those psychological stresses those structural stresses and kind of the accumulated stress of that job um and we work with a couple of uh police departments and different first responders and um you know the movement piece the structural piece has actually come up independently and so uh, that's a a great to hear that you're uh working towards helping that community because there's a lot of stuff that they have to deal with. Yeah, we um, take we take them pretty seriously and we have a, lo- a lot of uh firefighters and police officers and military folks have gotten certified in foundation training and have started bringing it to their communities. I mean even the Bondi lifeguards, you know, there's a couple lifeguards, Johnny Gannon is one of them that are certified in bringing it to the lifeguard community in Australia. Like there's just the first response community. They want to stay fit. They want to stay physical, but they also want to like remedy some of the damage they do to themselves because of their schedule and because of the intensity of their work. Yeah. And just even, you know, like you said, the physical demands, I mean, um, police officers have a utility belt that wraps around their midsection and has a, you know, possibly a big piece of equipment sitting in their low back while they're sitting in the car and disrupting their position and posture while sitting and then dealing with stress and um, carrying lots of load Uh, So when we talked about who can use foundation training, you know, office workers or people who have kind of more less biomechanically demanding jobs. And then we have all the way the other end, uh, which is first responders and athletes and movie stars even who have very physically demanding jobs. One of the most interesting patients that I work with uh, is a guy named Barney out of Australia who is a C5, maybe, I think it's C5 or C6 down quadriplegic. And we've been doing foundation training for a while, actually. Uh, We focus only on decompression breathing in and out of the chair. Uh, He is making more progress, and I certainly do not take credit for this. He's working with a team of people. He's been paralyzed for nearly 20 years. And in the last six or seven years he has made more progress than the previous 13 and in the last one year he has made substantially more progress than that and he is standing with and without support he is able to mitigate and fix his posture remarkably within the chair and out of the chair with some of the breathing techniques that we've worked on and some of the strength that we were able to find in some of the muscles that were sort of working, sort of not working, but now are working surprisingly well. I believe that he is going to be one of the first spinal cord injury people to make a, I don't want to say full recovery. I don't know that that is real or not, but to make a substantial recovery and to see that kind of scientifically quantified over a lifetime. Uh, I, I just feel I feel lucky to know him. His name's Barney Miller. He's one of the most motivating people I've ever met in my life. He's one of the happiest guys you'll ever get to be around him and his wife, Kate. But what he's doing physically, what he's able to do with a body that's not supposed to be able to do much of anything is extraordinary. And that he keeps progressing makes me believe that this guy is uncovering things that none of us understand within himself. And foundation training is for anybody with a body that is willing to experiment and curious about how much they might be able to do. And what we will do is we will help you find 
access within your body wherever access is able to be found. And in a guy like Barney, there's going to be areas we simply can't find it, no matter what, no matter what I do, no matter how many his coaches, no matter how many people look at his body and give him advice, there are certain things that might never happen. But the basis of foundation training is the things that can happen, we're going to improve as well as we can. And we're going to help you keep finding a little bit more and a little bit more as you become more sensitive to yourself and stronger as a result. And I love that there's an element of kind of self-empowerment to this entire story is putting the capability and the ability in your hands as the person at home listening or, or on the road or at work or wherever you are. Um, you know, it's just when you're, when you don't have to completely rely on, it's great to get help. I don't, I don't want to downplay uh, I often recommend people get a coach uh, as a starting point. If you can afford to work with somebody, definitely do. But it's also about self-empowerment and learning more about yourself and getting more sensitive to your insides like we were talking about and your structure and your biomechanics. Um, is there? That's a powerful story with, as well. And if it's it's one of those stories that says, okay, if this person can dig in and make incremental improvements beyond the uh beyond what anyone thought they could do then i can dig in and make some improvements that may have a drastically positive impact on my life and uh you know use that motivation to propel you forward yeah is whatever, there whatever the thing is that drives you forward is important to keep visiting that thing Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, to be honest, uh, if folks uh, have been exposed to me in this business, they may not have, they may not have uh, foreseen this, but I don't naturally have internal motivation, me personally. Um, I operate best when other people are relying on me. And I fortunately have kind of found that over the years that if somebody else is relying on me, I'll step up and make sure that I do whatever I can. But if it's just me at home and nobody's around and no one's expecting me to do anything, then, you know, I, I'll just sit there and do nothing. <laughs> That's funny. And so I'm the opposite. I've always had a sense of obligation and I find, I was like, you know what? I'm finally having a daughter. I'm going to have a kid. I'm finally going to have a reason for this sense of obligation that I've had my whole life. And it's going to be like, right, finally, I have there. There's a reason to feel this way that I have to be doing something. It's good. I look forward to that. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, you know I mentioned Vivek earlier, our core team member. He just had a, a second child last week or the week before, and we're in the middle of a huge product launch. So um, timing is never uh, the best for that type of thing. But um, it's just been amazing to watch from afar and just see you know that process taking place. So um, we'll probably be joining that parade in the not too distant future. Very cool, man. Uh, Very cool. Yeah. I'm excited for it. <clears throat> uh, do, you so what's, I, do you mind if I real quick, just mention a program we're coming out with? Yeah, let's go. Let's do that. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, so we are, we've been working for a couple of years. I wish a couple of years, about two and a half, three years. We've been working on this, this program called core elements, which is the best education that I can personally come up with and that my team can personally come up with for biomechanics. It's about six hours very long. It should take you several months to do if you do it properly. If you really take the time to learn foundation training, it should take you several months. It's six parts broken into very brief, entertaining lectures, like two to five minute lectures, broken into 
focus sessions and exercises where you learn an exercise. There's all kind of really cool graphics and, and it's very clean instruction. It's taught by myself and my five and five of our master instructors. Uh, it is the culmination of so many years of work and effort to make foundation training into what I believe it is capable of becoming, which is a world-class education on human biomechanics that is immediately applicable and immediately impactful on your body. And this core elements program is the closest I've ever come to that by far. We put so much work in it. It's going to be something you can buy and just stream, you know, you, you buy a login and you can stream it from our website any on any of your devices. And it's just a simple step by step by step by step learning process for this work. So I'm really proud of that. We just released it to our existing customer base. It's not public yet. It'll be public on Monday, uh, October, I guess we're on a podcast. So October like 18th or whatever that, whatever the next coming Monday is 17th or something. Um, yeah, that is when it goes public and it's been released to our 800 instructors and our, you know, 10 or so thousand, um, whatever it was, existing customers. We have a pretty, pretty reasonable customer base. And the feedback from them has been unbelievably inspiringly good. Uh, I was very excited to hear how much people are enjoying it. Um, it's a powerful program. You get the opportunity, go on foundationtraining.com purchase core elements, take your time in learning it. Let me know what it does for you. I'll probably do a lot. That's awesome. Core elements on foundationtraining.com. And it looks like Monday's the 16th. So if you're listening on or after the 16th of October, 2017, then it's out there. So foundationtraining.com. Um, so yeah, that was, that's perfect segue because I was going to say you and your team have done an amazing job helping so many people restore movement patterns, breathing patterns, posterior chain. And I was going to ask, what's the future of foundation training? But you kind of covered it there saying it's going to be an integrated and uh, complete picture of improving your biomechanics, incorporating some of the things that we talked about today and expanding on them further, I imagine, and then incorporating things we haven't even talked about. I, I'm going to I'm going to agree with everything in that except one statement, which was the complete picture of biomechanics. I can't give you a complete picture of biomechanics. I'm not smart enough and I never will be. But what we can provide is the best accessory to everything else you do to ensure that you're using as much of your biomechanics as you can access. Nothing. I, I don't I don't know perfect biomechanics or complete biomechanics. I really don't. I don't understand them. Um, but I do know that there's a, a few things that we can add that will make your body work better than it's working right now. Uh, yeah. And so that kind of reminds me of how, you know, I'm a, a tech guy, science guy, I'm a sci-fi nerd, and I love stories about outer space and what could be out there and how the universe works. But one thing that continuously impresses me or, or um, fascinates me is that there's so much going on in the human body that we don't understand and we may never understand fully. And uh, what you just mentioned there kind of plays into that same concept is we don't even have to look to the rest of the universe to learn a lot more. We can just look inside and learn. And uh, so powerful stuff. So there's going to be a lot out there, foundation training. We're growing um, and we're going to be, we're growing well. We're only a five-year-old company, even though my, my, my work that I've been doing is 10 years old. My business is only five years old and we only created a business to respond to demand. And 
you have my word that for as long as I'm around, I will be improving upon our business's offerings to the public because it is the only place that I really truly believe that I add value and that my team adds value is in basic biomechanics and basic corrective exercises and corrective breathing patterns. Outside of that, I just want to stay healthy, feel well, help people, love my wife and go surfing. That's the entire life I want to live. That's it. You know, and and I agree with you. There's such a, a joy in investigating the human body that I know that it will last me a lifetime, if not several lifetimes. You know, I, I really look forward to it, in fact. Yeah. And then, you know, coming back to what we said earlier, uh, people want to live their life. They want to be happy, healthy, and um, there's some other things they want to do. And they don't have necessarily the time, the energy, or the resources to spend all of their time trying to figure out different aspects of the human body. So turning to resources like this is a huge opportunity to learn and make improvements without having to do 10 years of research yourself. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's kind of wrap up with two things here. Um, what is one thing that the average person, I know there's one thing is very dependent, but the average person should stop doing today that would help their biomechanics? Or, or maybe not stop, because maybe it's impossible to stop, but one thing they should reduce the amount of time they spend doing that would really help with biomechanics. How about, how about if instead of reducing anything, how about if they simply increase the amount of focus they put on to how they feel when they get into their car, how they feel when they get out of it, how they feel when they get into their chair, how they feel when they get out of it, how they feel when they get into bed, how they feel when they get out of it. And if you take that 30 second to 60 second noticing time, both in and out, and you just stand as tall as you can, maybe learn one or two of my foundation poses and add it in. Instead of subtracting from everything else in life, just maybe try adding some really focused, healthy movement in and just just check in and see how you feel. That's all I want you to do. Awesome. That's even better. Checking in, becoming more self-aware. Self-aware. That's the key right there, man. You got to know what's going on around you and within you. Awesome. Well, Eric, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. Um, it sounds like on a number of topics that we could talk for hours and hours. So I'm excited to have had this opportunity and to connect again after several years after seeing you present. Um, so thanks so much again for taking the time. And, uh, you know, before we wrap up, people can find you at foundationtraining.com. Is that the best place? Is there other places folks no, should look to? That's the best. That's our, that's our information source. So please do use that. Awesome. And there's free resources there. There's free resources on YouTube, foundation training, and then the core elements program is launching on Monday for the first time to the public. And so that's exciting. I'm going to be checking that out and I encourage everyone listening to check it out as well. So thanks for thanks for coming, Eric. Thanks for sharing all this with us. Yeah, dude, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on here, Jason. And it was super cool. Thank you for you know the kind introduction this time, the kind introduction at uh, ACHS, and all these different nice things that you've done, you know, in support of of me and my work. So thank you so much for that. I do appreciate it. Oh uh, no, it's my pleasure. In uh, you know us small businesses, we stick together and help each other grow and. Uh, you know, expose people to cool things. Yeah. So. I wanted to, well, after this, I want to talk to you because I want to, uh, I want to send your app to a few of our first responder contacts 
that I think would get quite a quite a lot out of it. Awesome. Yeah, happy to talk about it. So with that, we'll wrap up the podcast. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. You know, the the usual, um, the podcast will be posted and show notes will be at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. And you can put comments and questions over there and uh, read and find links to foundation training and to Dr. Eric and things that we've talked about today. And hope you really enjoyed that episode. It was uh, super fascinating for me from a personal standpoint. And I hope to continue to dig into it. So we'll wrap it up there. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.